For what we see in our Colossians passage this morning is that God grows the gospel through a strange method, and that is through weak and suffering servants. Weak and suffering servants. That's why in today's passage, Paul shifts the subject from the supremacy of Christ, which we saw last week, to talking about himself, whom he has described in chapter 1, verse 23, as a minister, uh, which is literally a servant of Jesus. Uh, That's all a minister is. A minister is a servant of, of Jesus. However, the strange thing here is that the servant of this Jesus is the one who suffers. Uh, Notice that Paul speaks about his suffering in verse 24, chapter 1, verse 24. He says, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, the church. It's important to see here that Paul first speaks about his rejoicing in the work of the gospel. You see, Paul knows the great joy of serving Jesus who has delivered him from the domain of darkness and transferred him into his uh, wonderful kingdom. Uh, Paul knows what a great privilege it is to serve the one who is the Lord of all things in this age and in the age to come. I hope that uh, you and I who serve the gospel, know this joy of serving the one who died for us. But in a strange way, the emphasis here is on Paul's suffering. It's not that Paul is a masochist, or he doesn't simply say that he rejoices in the suffering itself. Rather, he understands the purpose of his suffering which is for the sake of the Colossians and the gospel bearing fruit and increasing all over the world, you see. The quote is true that if you haven't found something worth dying for, you haven't found something worth living for. For Paul, the thing that he lived for and was prepared to die for was to see this gospel bearing fruit and increasing all over the world. Listen to how Paul describes his ministry in 2 Corinthians 11. Uh, you might be familiar with this passage, but he, uh, he speaks about his work involving far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings and often near death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes, less one. Three times I was beaten with rods, once I was stoned, Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea. On frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship. Through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure, and apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. I think it's fair to say that Paul suffered danger, don't you think? But what does he mean in verse 24 when he says that in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions? 
Uh, it sounds kind of wrong to say that there is something lacking or deficient in the suffering death of Christ, doesn't it? In what sense is the death of Christ lacking uh, in this verse? Uh, well, friends, uh, when we are unsure about the meaning of any verse in the Bible, the most important principle is to read the verse uh, in its context, in the context of the surrounding verses uh, as well as the rest of the Bible. And so, uh, for example, in this passage, we can figure out that Paul cannot be saying that the suffering death of Christ was somehow lacking or deficient in its power to save. For well, he has already said, if you remember, back in chapter 1, verse 21, that Christ's death on the cross has powerfully reconciled these Colossian Christians who were previously alienated and hostile in mind and doing evil deeds. But what is lacking is that although the gospel was bearing fruit and increasing all over the world, well, it still has not reached every part of the world when Paul is writing this letter, has it? And so Paul is willing to suffer so that the gospel might reach every corner of this world. You see, friends, this is what it's like to be a servant of the gospel. Yes, it is full of rejoicing, for ultimately it is about serving Jesus and his body, the church. But it is nevertheless a life of suffering. Now, it is true that in Australia, it is highly unlikely that you and I will suffer uh, physical persecution or death for serving the gospel. Uh, although the days when Christians face jail time for um, speaking out about Jesus uh, may be just around the corner, who knows? And yet, I want to ask us this morning, uh, is the paradigm of your life and my life about suffering for the gospel? Or is the paradigm of your life and my life really about comfort and about ease and an unwillingness to take risks for the gospel? Some of us, I know, are thinking about going into full-time Christian ministry uh, others of us will be working as full-time ministers of the gospel in the not-too-distant future. Uh, if that is you, then please know that what you are signing up for, if you want to be a faithful servant of Jesus, is a life of suffering. For all its joys, for all its wonderful meaning and purpose, the life of a servant of the gospel is one of suffering. But why does, the Paul, uh, why does the Apostle Paul suffer in this way? Well, for Paul, it was because of his unique place in God's plan for this world. Now, you can see it there in verse 25 where Paul says, of which, that is the church, I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them, 
God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Uh, Now, you'll notice here that Paul's role as a minister or as a servant of the gospel is according to the stewardship from God. Uh, The word stewardship literally means administration. Uh, Think of an administrator uh, putting into uh, into motion an important plan uh, for the company or or what have you. Uh, Paul is a servant of the gospel because of God's administration or God's plan for this world. But what is God's plan for this world? Well, you see it there. Uh, in verse 26, that God's plan for the world is described as a mystery. It's not a mystery in the sense of being mysterious or cryptic or unknowable, which is often the way we use the word mystery, isn't it? But it's describing something that was previously hidden but is now uh, unveiled or revealed for all to see. Uh, It's a bit like a product launch, if you like. Uh, You know, whenever Apple wants to release a new iPhone, um, the details of the new phone are are strictly hidden for a while, isn't it? Everyone knows that something amazing is going to happen, but the details are are hidden away. And no one is uh, quite sure what it's going to be. Uh, But then what they do is they organize a launch day where Steve Jobs or whoever it might be Uh, reveals to the world, uh, finally, uh, the details of this amazing product. Uh, That's what Paul means by the word mystery here. It's something that was hidden for ages and generations in the Old Testament. Uh, Even though it was there all along, not even the prophets were able to see it clearly. But now, says Paul, God's plan for this world has finally and wonderfully and clearly being being revealed to his saints. Who are the saints here? Well, I think Paul here is speaking uh, primarily about the first Jewish Christians. Well, you see, this plan of God was first revealed to the Jewish Christians, such as the apostles, and to Paul, whom God handpicked to take the gospel to the Gentile world. But this ultimately is what the plan of God is all about. It's about the gospel going from the Jews to, to the Gentiles and to the rest of the world. To people like the Colossians and to people like you and me. It's about Christ in you, Gentiles, Paul says. The hope of glory. You know, friends, today we take it for granted that Christianity is a worldwide uh, faith, don't we? Um, you, you're probably hearing this thinking, oh, you know, tell me something I don't know. It seems like such an obvious thing to us. But I want you to see just how astonishing a thing this would have been for people of Paul's day. For Christianity in his day would simply have been considered a sect in the Jewish faith. The idea of a Jewish person mixing with a Gentile person whom they considered worse than dogs 
would have been abhorrent to them. And so how strange that this gospel is for the Gentiles, is for the nations. I mean, have you ever considered how strange it is that you and I are followers of Jesus today? Have you ever sat down and pondered that? Even now, I sometimes think, how strange is it that a a Korean-born man like me, living on the edge of the world in Australia, of all places, has the Jewish Messiah dwelling in my heart, (laughs) giving me the certain hope of eternal life. Isn't that a strange thing? And if it's true for me, I'm, I'm sure it's true for you, unless you're Jewish. Uh, hands up those who are Jewish here. Uh, not no one. <laughs> Yet this is a reality, friends, only because God's plan was for the gospel to reach the Gentile nations and was revealed first to people like the Apostle Paul, who suffered terribly for the sake of the gospel. And Paul did his job remarkably well, don't you think? For now, people from every nation and language and tongue all over the world praise the name of Jesus. We need to be thankful for people like Paul and for others who suffered so much so that the gospel could reach the nations and people like you and me. And so, because it is God's plan to make the gospel word known to the nations through suffering servants like Paul, notice that Paul is on a mission to reach everyone that he can with the gospel. In fact, in verse 28, he gives us his mission statement, doesn't he? Uh, It says there in verse 28, Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. I love mission statements because the best ones give a clear picture of the purpose of the organization. Uh, they articulate the core business of an organization. They help you to work out what is essential and what is not essential that perhaps you might need to cut out uh, of the way you do things. And so, for example, uh, here are some mission statements from famous organizations. Uh, Microsoft had this mission statement for many years. Um, Their mission statement was, a computer on every desk and in every home. Uh, I think they succeeded, uh, don't you think? Which means they have probably moved on to a new mission statement uh, in their business. Uh, Ted has this mission statement, spread ideas. Uh, If the number of YouTube hits is anything to go by, I think they're doing pretty well in their mission statement. Uh, IKEA has the mission statement, to create a better everyday life for many people. Not quite sure about that one, after my recent frustrations, uh, putting together uh, Helsvik, or whatever it was. Friends, I want to say to you that if you and I understand the plan and purpose of God for the gospel to reach everyone in this world 
through suffering servants, then you cannot get a better mission statement than Colossians 1.28. What is Paul's mission? Well, it is to proclaim Christ. How does he do it? Well, negatively, he warns everyone about rejecting Christ. And positively, he teaches everyone what it means to follow Christ with all wisdom. Because it's not always easy to know how to go about proclaiming the gospel. Has that been your experience? Especially in this coronavirus season, it's, we require God's wisdom, don't we, to know how to speak to other people about Jesus. So why does Paul keep on doing what he does? Well, it's because, his great desire, because of his great desire, which is actually God's desire, to present everyone on the last day complete in Christ, holy and blameless and above reproach, because they are trusting in the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ for them, for themselves. But friends, here's the thing. Notice that this mission statement is not only for the Apostle Paul. Uh, yes, Paul is unique in the sense that he was the first Jew to be uniquely commissioned by God to take the gospel to the Gentile nations and to suffer for the sake of Christ. And yet you'll notice there in chapter 1, verse 28, that Paul switches from speaking in the singular to the plural. He goes from speaking in the I in the previous verses to speaking in the we. In other words, people like Timothy and people like Epaphras and other partners in the gospel had joined Paul in this vision of the world as God had worked in their lives. Indeed, if you and I are people who understand the plan of God, then this mission statement is for us as well. I was thinking this week, well, isn't this a wonderful verse to kind of just uh, print out in large print and, and put up on our walls so that we can work out what is essential in life and what is not essential? It's a good litmus test of knowing how you and I are going as servants of the gospel, isn't it? Who is it that you are proclaiming Christ to? Who are you warning about the consequences of rejecting Christ? Who are you teaching about Jesus with all wisdom? Who are you helping so that they will be able to stand mature before Christ on the last day. Friends, if your mind is going blank at that point, can I suggest to you that something may not quite be right in your understanding of the gospel? And there may be things that you need to change today as you hear God's word and as you hear God's plan uh, for this world. Of course, on our own, this is an impossible task, isn't it? For it involves suffering and struggling and toil, and we ourselves are weak. I am weak. And yet it is precisely in this work that God shows his power, which is why Paul is able to say in verse 29, for this I toil, struggling with all his energy, that he powerfully works within me. 
And this, friends, is why finally Paul wants the Colossians to know about his struggles for them. Notice he says in chapter 2, verse 1, For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea, which is a neighboring town, and for all who have not seen me face to face. You see, Paul is not telling these Colossians about his struggle because you know, he some, somehow wants sympathy from them or admiration or because he wants them to compare him to other ministers who don't work quite as hard as him. You know, that's sometimes our motivation when we tell other people you know, how busy we are or um, how hard we've been working, isn't it? But no, ultimately Paul is wanting them to know about his struggles because he wants them to see that God is the one who is powerfully at work, doing the work of growing the gospel through weak and suffering servants like him. What is the struggle that he's engaged in? Uh, Well, we've already seen that the struggle involves proclaiming the gospel. But later on in Colossians 4.12, he uses the language of struggle to to describe the way Epaphras is struggling to pray for them, for the church. I mean, praying might sound easy, but if you've ever tried to pray for any length of time, uh, you'll know just how much a struggle it is, I'm guessing. And so Paul's struggle is really all about proclaiming the gospel and praying for the work of the gospel. Uh, Literally, the word for struggle here is a word from which we get the word agony from. Uh, Paul agonizes in these things as he struggles for the gospel. Uh, What was the purpose for which he struggled in this way? Well, it was to see the Colossians and other Christians like them growing in Christian maturity. Uh, Notice how he puts it in verse 2, chapter 2, verse 2, where he says, uh, so that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. In other words, the Apostle Paul here wants to see the hearts of these Colossian Christians, the core of who they are, to be full of comfort and courage in the gospel. He wants them to know the bond of love that comes from believing in the gospel. He wants them to have confidence in living life as they grow in their understanding of God's plan for this world. In a nutshell, he wants them to know that all the treasures of wisdom and understanding, all the treasures of wisdom and understanding that they need to live this life is found nowhere else but in Christ. That's what true Christian maturity looks like, doesn't it, friends? The truly mature Christian person is the one who seeks wisdom to live life, ultimately not in other places, but in Christ. The mature Christian person knows that all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge is not ultimately found at Oxford or Harvard. It's not found in the media 
It's not found in what the latest fad is at the time. Neither is it found in our favorite Christian websites or on the lips of uh, our favorite Christian preachers, as helpful as those things might be. Rather, all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge to live this life is found in Christ. So why is Christian maturity important? Uh, Well, we're going going to flesh this out in uh, much more detail next week. But uh, you can see there in in verse 5 that it's because there are dangers uh, to the Christian life that Paul calls plausible arguments. Uh, It's often the ideas and attitudes and arguments of this world that sound plausible, uh, believable, uh, perhaps with a half-truth in them that are the most dangerous to the Christian life. Christian maturity guards against being deluded by those things. And so when Paul sees this group of Christians in Colossae growing in their faith despite these dangers to their Christian lives, well, he's full of rejoicing. For this can only be the the work of God, you see. Uh, That's why in our passage this morning, uh, it ends with verse 5 where Paul says, Though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith. In Christ. Well, friends, uh, we began this morning by asking the question why does the gospel so often not seem so powerful? Uh, We've seen the answer in Colossians is that it is because of God's strange ways in growing this gospel. Uh, He does it not through impressive, mighty, powerful people in this world but he does it through weak, unimpressive, and suffering servants of the gospel. And yet it is through such servants that the gospel grows and grows all around the world, isn't it? Uh, You may have heard the name Richard Johnson, uh, who was the first chaplain to Australia, who arrived with the first fleet in 1788. Um, I was reminded of... uh, Uh, Johnson this week in Richard Chin's wonderful short commentary uh, on the book of Colossians, because uh, Richard Johnson is a man who suffered terribly for the gospel to make progress here in Sydney. At one point, he wrote a letter to his spiritual father, John Newton. Uh, Does anyone know who John Newton is? Uh, He's the one who, who wrote that amazing hymn, Amazing Grace, which uh, I think our first song may Uh, have borrowed from. But uh, uh, Richard Johnson wrote a letter to to John Newton telling him just how discouraged he was in the early years of ministry here in Sydney. Uh, This is what John Newton wrote back to him. He said, I have not been disheartened by your apparent want of success. I have been told that skillful gardeners will undertake to sow and raise a salad for dinner in the short time while the meat is roasting. But no gardener can raise oaks with such expedition or speed. You are sent to New Holland, that is Australia, 
not to sow salad seed, but to plant acorns, and your labor will not be lost. Though the first appearances may be very small and the progress very slow, you are, I trust, planting for the next century. I have a good hope that your oaks will one day spring up and flourish and produce other acorns, which in due time will take root and spread among the islands and nations in the Southern Ocean. Uh, I think we can all see and testify that by God's grace, uh, the acorns that Richard Johnson planted through the suffering of his ministry have grown to bear much fruit for the gospel in our city of Sydney, hasn't it? Uh, today we see literally thousands of churches which have been planted and which have grown and which are now sending missionaries to the Southern Ocean and even beyond the Southern Ocean to themselves plant the acorns that will continue to bear fruit for the gospel. Uh, I don't think even Richard Johnson could have imagined what Sydney would become under God. But it is what it is because God used servants like him who was willing to suffer for the gospel so that the gospel might bear fruit and increase all through the world. Now, friends, are you and I the ones who are willing to suffer for the sake of this gospel? Are we the ones who are willing to give up our comforts and our ease, eases and for our wrong attitudes, perhaps, so that we can suffer uh, in the ways that others have suffered before us? So that God might continue uh, to do his work of growing the gospel seeds. Let's pray together. Uh, Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the Apostle Paul who suffered for the sake of the gospel uh, so that the gospel might reach the nations. Thank you that we are the beneficiaries of this work and the work of so many others who suffered to see the gospel progressing in this world. Now, Father, we thank you this morning for the great privilege it is to know your plan and vision for this world and to have your mystery revealed so clearly to us in your word. Father, we pray that by your grace you would encourage us and help us to live in the light of what you are doing in this world today. Help us to be the, the people who proclaim Christ, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that everyone might be presented on the last day mature in Christ. Father, we confess that often we find proclaiming Christ and praying for the work of the gospel to be difficult, especially during this season of coronavirus. It's often hard knowing how to go about doing this work and so we pray for your wisdom and for opportunities and for courage to speak, even if it involves suffering. And we pray that through your suffering servants, you would do your great work of growing the gospel uh, all over this world. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.